Welcome to the Brains Magazine podcast, a podcast with in-depth interviews and conversations with world-class entrepreneurs, expert coaches, industry leaders, and international celebrities. Get exclusive insight into the world of business, mindset, leadership, and lifestyle with your host, Mark Sefton. Welcome to this episode of The Brains Magazine, and I am absolutely excited today. Probably the most excitement that I've had for any guests that I've interviewed so far on The Brains Magazine podcast. Today, we have Marissa Peer. Marissa is the founder and creator of the Rapid Transformational Therapy, known as RTT, also best-selling author of five books, and also known as the best UK therapist. Marissa, how are you? That's quite an introduction. I'm very good, actually. I'm great. How are you? I'm good. You know, if I was any better, I'd be twins, Marissa. But I, I think a part, a part of it is because of I'm with esteemed company. I'm so excited for this interview with you. Well, I'm excited, too, and it's fun to be here. It is. And I love your hat and I love your, your polka dot blouse. It's adorable. Beautiful. So... Yeah. Yeah, my first question for you, Marissa, is what is the actual essence of rapid transformational therapy? That's a good question. A lot of people think the words rapid and therapy should not go together. That Therapy by its very nature should be long, and it's all about building up trust with your therapist in order to change. And while I understand that for some people, building up trust is a great thing, I'm constantly perplexed by the fact that the only healing modality that makes you wait. So if you went to the emergency room with a broken leg or the dentist with a abscess in your gum or a chiropractor with a backache, none of them would say, well, we have to build a relationship first and we need to get to know, we need to talk over time. And I think what we're forgetting is people in emotional pain, it's the same as physical pain. If I turn up at A&E with a broken leg, if I'd have a therapist with um, feeling unlovable, having anxiety attacks, lacking confidence, having money blocks, being rejected, I'm in just as much pain as someone in the emergency room. Mm. And so I've always felt that all treatment should be as fast as it possibly can be for the client. Clients want to be out of pain as fast as they can. And so I always wanted a model that would take them out of pain as fast as it would be very effective. There's nobody going, oh yeah, we do fast therapy, it wears off, it doesn't last, it's not very good. My mission was to create an amazing therapy, the best therapy, I think it is the best therapy ever, but it had to have results that lasted forever. And it was exciting to create that without having to involve 50 sessions or 100 sessions or coming in every Tuesday at four o'clock for years because we live in such a fast world now. Mm. I mean, we can't even wait for that little circle thing. And then, oh, just go to the next. I can't wait for that one to open. I'm going to the next one. And I think we live in a fast world. People just don't have time anymore. Everything is faster than it ever was. We have faster broadband, faster everything, faster food. And I think we should have faster therapy too. Yes, I think it's good that you're actually tackling that because I think often when we get feedback in business, sometimes we hide away from it. But if you see it as a an objection and almost you want to educate people as as you did then, I think that's uh, really helpful. How how did you come up with with this essence of therapy? Like, how did you actually frame that, uh, and what did you draw on in order to to shape this newfound therapy? 
Well, my father was a very eminent head teacher and he always taught me, even as a child, you know, the whole point of life is to help people. That was his motto, help people. And he also believed that you should make every child feel important and that you should always reward um, effort, not achievement. And so I was always fascinated by human behavior because he was such a great guy. He was fascinated by it too. And I always, I found therapy just amazing because it's so helpful, but how I came up with RTT because RTT is really about the client and not the therapist. And having been a therapist for all of my adult life, people would come back and go, oh, you know, last week when you did that, said that, that changed my life. That was a game changer. When you made me say it's not me or have a dialogue with the person that hurt me or give me the praise I've always been looking for. Wow, who would have known I could change that far? So I guess I was always collating in my entire life as a therapist, things that worked. And then one client would say, you know, when you told me all my hoarding and addiction is because I'm not enough, that really the penny dropped. I thought, oh, well, now I'm going to try that with someone who's an alcoholic or a drug addict. And they say the same thing. Wow, how did you get that? So I created the I'm Enough movement because I realized that half of all my clients, probably even more that would come in with alcoholism, drug addiction, hoarding, compulsive shopping, being needy, all had the same thing, I'm not enough. And I thought, well, how cool if I treat them I'm not enoughness and create an I'm enough movement because bullies don't feel enough. And then they bully kids and then the kids they bully don't feel enough. People whose dads disappear when they're one or parents say, you know, we wanted a boy and you were the fourth girl and it's okay, but you are our last chance to have a boy. Even in jest, they think, oh, I'm a disappointment. So for me, Finding something, one thing that was the common denominator of all of our issues. I mean, if you look at Amy Winehouse, Michael Jackson, George Michael, Whitney Houston, Princess Diana, Marilyn Monroe, there it is. They had everything except the one thing you need, which is I'm enough just the way I am. I always have been and I always will be. Now that I know it, you can know it too. So. That was really exciting, creating that movement, writing the book. You might say, I've got all my little I'm enough bracelets here and having the T-shirt, literally the T-shirt. And people write to me from schools, right, and say, wow, you know, we've got the I'm enough going on. Someone from a university said, you know, we get the students, even though they're 18, they're so invested in the I'm enough movement. I have yoga teachers and chiropractors saying, you know, I say that to all my clients or patients. So... It was really exciting to find one thing that I could pin change onto. And I'm really happy about that. Mm, that yeah. When I work with a psychologist, uh, I, I looked at the different therapies there were, Marissa, and uh, I had Zoom calls with five of them. And uh, for me, it was important. Is it, it was probably as important with the therapist that I was going to work with as much as what therapy they use. So I kind of identified what I thought was my most favorable therapy. But actually, I, I decided to go with the therapist that I really had that kind of connection chemistry and, and trust with. I know that people can train in RTT. How do you find the right balance to be able to find the right therapist who can take hold of your therapy and then use it with clients in a way that makes you feel good that you know they are embracing some of your own, your own values? 
That's a very good question too, because RTT is not for everyone. And somebody said to me once, you know, you're the Jamie Oliver of therapists. Do you know what? I'm going to take that because if Jamie said, take a chicken, take some lemon, take some coriander, take some coconut milk and do this and this in that order, you will get something very similar to what I would create in my own kitchen. And so when I put RTT together, it had to be a formula. It's a formula for success, a recipe, if you like. And we teach people, look, you're not going to do this by rote, but if you do this, this and this. So we have the first part of RTT is being an investigator. You put on your detective hat and you gather information. The second part is almost being like a dentist and extracting all that toxic stuff. And then we have all kinds of interruptions because we investigate how the client got to be the way they are. We interpret it, we interrupt it, and then you become like a coder and you install a much better belief system. And I, you know, I can always divide my students into three. There's one group and I think, wow, these people have really got it. They're so good. And yet they don't, I said, what are you doing? They go, I'm just gonna do another course reading. I'm waiting. I'm like, have you ever met a plumber waiting to be good or a waitress waiting? You are really good at this, go out and do it. And then we have the second group who are not as naturally talented as the first group. What's happened with them is they've taken out a loan, well, they've given in their job and they've got to do it and they just go straight out I guess you call it jumping in the saddle and they do phenomenal work and you know we always because we train a lot of existing therapists a lot of psychiatrists a lot of nurses not a lot of grief counselors all kinds of existing therapists and they're very good but we found some of the best ones have no therapy background but what they have is people skills and if you have people skills and a real desire to help, that is the most important thing. Of course, you need to be smart. It's great if you can think quickly on your feet. It's nice to have empathy. It's nice to have a real desire to make a difference. But we can teach you everything that will make you an amazing therapist if you just turn up with this thing that says, I like people and I want to help. And I had a psychiatrist I was training who said to me, I hate people. I don't like weak people. I don't like any of my patients. I'm like, wow, of all the people I trained, that person was the hardest person to convert. It did work eventually because they didn't like people and they saw weakness as a fault. Mm -hmm. And it's not a fault at all. But I think if, you know, when people come to work with me and when I'm training my students, I say, look, this is such a privilege. Someone comes along and they show you like a book, the story of their life. You see each chapter, my dad left before I was born. My mother married an alcoholic. My mum worked in a pub. She was never home. I'd look after all the other kids. I could never go to after school activities. And here I am. And I just feel nobody likes me. And you have the honor and the joy of you can't change the first bit of the story, but you can certainly change the next bit. So we get to change the ending because we can't change the beginning. And if you view every client as I still do 30 plus years on, each client fascinates me, they intrigue me. It's like the movie of their life is unfolding and I know, wow, this is all coming together, but I'm gonna give this person a better ending than they would have had if they didn't come to me. And that's what makes it so exciting and all my graduates get to do that too and they all say wow this is the best job in the world we had a very very famous fashion designer who came to us and said you know the world of fashion is so cruel and he said but i looked in the eyes of this little kid that i cured of a stutter and went that's me for the rest of my life i will never have any other job and for me 
I will never retire because I just love it so much. Mm. I know you love human behavior like I do, uh, Marissa, but what shocks you and fascinates you about human behavior? I think the thing that saddens me the most, and it's something we should all be taught, is that, you know, children by nature depend on their parents. When you're a little baby, even if you're a three-year-old, you understand innately that your survival is linked to the people raising you, caring about you. And often children feel, well, my mum doesn't care. She's always at work. My dad's never here. He's always in the pub. They're always fighting. They're always arguing. And the saddest thing of all is that when a parent doesn't meet their kids' needs to feel loved, safe, secure, and worthy, the child doesn't stop loving the parent. They immediately stop loving themselves. Mm. You could see that with Marilyn Murray. You could see it with Diana. You could see it with Michael Jackson. It's like, oh, if you don't love me, I'm not lovable. If, you, if you're unhappy and you've got me, well, I obviously don't make you happy. So therefore I'm not good enough because a child before the age of five has no logic at all, only feeling. When mum is crying, dad's depressed, mum is drinking, dad's off or taking pills or whatever they're doing, they think, oh, you're not happy. I should make you happy. I can't make you happy. I guess I'm not enough. So they don't stop loving a parent, even when they're abusive, they stop loving themselves. And then they begin to buy into this, I'm not good enough, smart enough, worthy enough, interesting enough. And sadly, they will often keep that going forever mm. unless they have a therapy like RTT, which will immediately locate and very exquisitely remove that too. And then put in the new stuff. Of course, you're enough. You always have been, you always will be. Yeah, that belief that we we either believe something that is true or not. And then yeah. any trigger that represents that takes us back to that first moment when we felt that rejection and abandonment. And yeah. it's something that I've seen in my own life, having to work through that coming from a broken family and navigating that even as an adult, you know, strands of abandonment or rejection based on, you know, my separation from, you yeah. know, my parents being under one roof. Marissa, I have a fear and adverse reaction to blood. Uh, how would you how would you help me with that yeah I was just I'm just writing my new book tell yourself a better lie and one of the things I was writing about is a guy called Dorian he used to faint at the sight of blood and how it really wasn't about the blood at all it was about this feeling that he'd caused his mother immense pain when he was born and his granny said oh you nearly killed your mother and for some reason he translated that into a fear of blood many years ago this woman came to see me with a paralyzing fear of blood and you just go back and look at it and go well look you know that made sense when you were a kid and something was going on but you don't need it anymore so you have to look at the role function and purpose of any fear or phobia kind of dialogue with the mind when did you get this what, what was going on in your life did it serve any kind of obscure purpose and we remove it what was so funny with her is that she said you know I left your office I should I drove him I went to the garage to get petrol and I walked in and the this guy was holding up the garage. He'd actually cut his hand. And I looked at him and I thought, wow, look at that. I'm not even remotely bothered by that bloodshed. I was so pleased with myself. I didn't think, well, I should actually run out of here and call the police. And she said, I just stood there where I think, this is amazing. I'm not one And then I suddenly ran out and got my phone. But then the police arrived. They'd already pressed, he'd already pressed the button out of the counter. And they said, why didn't you? Because she said, well, you know, I was scared of blood and then I was cured. And I was just looking at this with fascination. So I love that story. But any fear, whether it's a fear of vomiting, 
a fear of heights. Fears aren't rational. They often serve a rational purpose. So, you know, I always think that if you have anything that you don't want, whether that's a fear, a phobia, a nervous twitch, it's only ever going to be one of three things that will begin with P. The first one is I'm going to protect you. Now that you have this fear of vomiting, you can't really go to school or go on school trips and no one expects much of you because you know you've got this fear. So for many children having psoriasis or dermatitis or a nervous tummy protects them. They, they get a, a kind of a, oh, you don't have to do that. The second P is to punish you. Why would your mind punish you? Well, often we think, you know, I stole money from my mum's purse. I made out with my best friend's boyfriend. I cheated on an exam and I feel so guilty. We used to wear hair shirts and go to confession. And if you feel guilt, the mind will come up with a punishment. Let me give you a nervous stomach, tension, headaches. And the third P is called prioritize me draw attention to me. For many children, when they don't feel that, I'm not sure my mom loves me. She doesn't act like she loves me, but since I got this allergy, she's driving all over town, buying gluten-free flour, making me special food, putting on the cream. So I don't know she loves me, but I do feel I'm important. I must matter, at least I feel she cares. And so fear of blood, if you look at the three, was it to punish me, prioritize me, or indeed protect me? When I was a kid, I was late for everything. I could not have been on time. And I realized one day that I always missed the bus to school and I'd come and my father would be just beside himself, but he would drive me in, in a fury. And I realized it was to get his attention. I felt important because I never missed the bus home from school, only the bus going to school. And the minute I thought, oh, I'm late to make my dad notice me. I don't need that anymore. It changed overnight. So I work with many people who are compulsive eaters and say, well, you know, I was made to finish food. My dad stood over me like a tyrant on your plate, eat it. Or we didn't have enough food. Right? My mum would cry if I didn't finish the food. Look at that. That makes perfect sense. At your time, that time of your life, any kid would have done that. But now you don't need to do that. That's, that just doesn't matter anymore. The whole rejection thing comes from the fact that if you went back 500 years, rejection would kill you. If you watch Game of Thrones, you see the truth. Survival was a numbers game. Belong to a big group and you might make it. Belong to a tiny group and you couldn't possibly make it. So we have this fear that we'll die from rejection because once upon a time we did. And now we won't because we know logically I could live in an apartment until I was 102, get everything to do and never see a soul and I would live. But the fear that we could die of rejection haunts us, even though we know logically it's not true. And so most fears, including the fear of blood are irrational and illogical. And rather than try to consciously work them out, because if you understand the rule of the mind, emotion is more powerful than logic. You can't defeat emotion with logic. So you have to go back and think, well, when did I get this fear? What was going on? If it could help me in any way, what would it be? Easier to do that in hypnosis because you'll get the answer immediately. And then you use an emotion to get rid of the fear instead of logic. Okay, yeah. I think I've identified when, and my mum shut my finger in the door when I was two and it was hanging off by a piece of thread. Lots mm -hmm. of blood. And my dad said she was hysterical. So okay. ever since then, it seems to have really strengthened. And even talking about it affects... Mm -hmm 
my, me uh, physiology, you know. Yeah, because that's an imprint, you see. When you have a scared child and an authority figure who is scared, it's a bit like if your mom starts screaming because she sees a cat or a dog or a mouse or gets on an aeroplane and is drinking and is clutching your hand on a knuckle. Which is, the child thinks, oh, this is scary. So you've taken your cue from your mother who was hysterical, but it wasn't the blood. It was probably the fact that she'd shut your finger in the door and she was just reacting. And so you, the mind will always go back to what something means. You were two. You depended on your mom to look after you and she was, she'd lost it. She was screaming. You must've felt very scared. And the quickest way to get over that is to do this, to go, well, that's not me. I'm not two. I'm all grown up. And if I shut my finger in the door, I'd wrap it in a bandage, call A&E, take myself to the doctors. That little boy was a dependent child and I'm an independent adult and it's not me. But it's just, you know, if you, if you take, if you sit a kid on mum's knee and have a dog in the room, and the dog growls, the child will look at mom. How is mom reacting? Oh, mom's scared. This is going, oh, mom's smiling and laughing. It's fine because children look at their parents to see, is this safe or not? And your mother being hysterical told you this is terrifying, mm. but actually it really wasn't. Mm. You've got to reframe what it means. You can't change the, your finger being shut on the door, but you can change the meaning you attach to that immediately. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's kind of the path that I'm on, but I thought I would take it would be a great kind of role play uh, yeah. within the context that we're talking about. Now, I, I love I love, you know, being able to thrive mentally. Uh, and I know we talked a lot about the power of thoughts, uh, which is specifically attached to our belief systems. But what are some of the vital thoughts we should have to thrive well, if you want to thrive mentally, I couldn't re recommend enough this. Every morning when you wake up, say these four things. I'm significant. I matter. I'm lovable just the way I am. And I am enough. And I always will be. Just those four things. You see, when you're a kid, when you're a baby, when you're that two-year-old that hurt your finger, you have very simple needs. I need to feel safe. I need to feel loved. I need to feel signal. I need to feel I matter. All of those needs are just so, so that you'll take care of me. A bit older, we also get, well, I, I kind of need to feel that you're proud of me too. It's again, I matter, I'm worthy. And the problem is that our needs are very simple. If our needs aren't met, and many kids, their needs are not met, they don't feel lovable. They don't feel, and they feel the opposite. Nobody cares about me. I'm the youngest kid of seven. My dad's always complaining. And when the needs aren't met, two things happen. The child goes, oh, I can't meet this need. And it will be like this for the rest of my life. It will be like this always. They tag on a, I can never fix this. It's why poor kids who never had money become rich kids. You go, I can't waste that. Turn the heating off. That's really expensive because they still live in that mindset of I can't fix this. And the second thing is they go out and go, hey, could you, could you meet my need? I really need to feel I matter. How about I give you that need? Could you make me feel important? You might need to say, yeah, I can do that. Sure. But when you give someone the job of making, meeting your need to feel important, attractive, desirable, interesting, funny, witty, work, whatever, they can take that away anytime and say, oh, I'm nothing without my partner. They don't want me anymore. They just 
dump me and I feel worthless. So if you have an unmet need, and again, they're always going to be to matter, to feel important, to feel lovable, meet it yourself. That may sound crazy, but look in the mirror and go, hey, you're smart, you're amazing. Think of what I call the missing bit of you, the words you've been waiting your whole life to hear. If you wanted your parents to tell you that you were smart, or they're so glad they had a girl and not a boy, or a boy and not a girl, or that you're the favorite, start saying it. And amazingly, because I did that, I always wanted to be the favorite, I never was. I began to go, I'm the favorite, I'm the favorite. And it was actually a shock to me how fast that actually became from my dad started saying, you've always been my favorite. Do you know, I really wasn't. But suddenly he believed I was because, you know, I see your book, Sarah, I'm so proud of you. And I thought, well, that's kind of weird because I've always wanted this. Now I've got it. I don't really like it, but also I don't even need it. But the real way to, to help yourself is recognize your unmet needs and then start to make because go, I'm going to find this great because I'm going to meet all my needs. Well, you can't do that. You can't find a partner. I'm going to have a kid. And they're going to make me feel so loved, but they, they're difficult and they grow up and leave home. But when you meet your own need, especially to feel lovable, when you can kind of fall in love with yourself, that lasts forever. You don't have, you don't have any waxing, nothing has to be injected in or snipped off. It never disappoints you. It never forgets your birthday and falling in love with yourself by going, hey, I, I'm a good person. I've got a good heart and I'm kind. Because when other people say, hey, you're great, you go, what do you want? Are you manipulating me here? Maybe not. But when you say it to yourself, your mind says one thing. If you're saying it, it's got to be true. And it sinks in like lotion on dry skin and it nourishes you from the inside out. Mm. And it may sound simple, it is, but it's powerful beyond belief. Think about your needs, meet them yourself. Think about the words you want to hear. I'm great, I'm kind, I matter say them to yourself every day because your mind doesn't know and it really doesn't care who says those words they just go in mm. so don't give that power to someone else give it to yourself and then it lasts a lifetime yes yeah, so that self-ownership self-talk and we talked a little bit about the reframe why is it marissa that the mind loves you know dramatic talk just going to say one thing about that because the fastest way to raise your self-esteem by a non is to praise yourself. Why does the mind love dramatic talk? Well, if you say to them, Harry, the girl, right, not bad. The way you feel about everything is down to the pictures you are making in your head and the words. So if someone says, Harry, you go, oh, I'm awesome. I'm, I'm on fire. I'm just having the best time of my life. It's just amazing. They're giving you a picture. How are you? Mm, I'm all right, a bit more. You know, when I say to clients, um, how are you? They go, well, I'm just a train wreck today. You know, I, I ate like a pig all weekend. I'm out of control. I've got this chronic headache that's killing me. Look at me, my legs are the size of tree trunks. And all this is completely untrue. But the words are so dramatic and so descriptive that the mind will lock onto any descriptive word. So if you have a pain, you've got, I've got chronic pain, a chronic pain, it's killing me. You need to switch that. So I've got a slight niggle, probably dehydration, drink some water. It's going to go in 20 minutes. That will happen. So when you want to feel good, use really powerful, exciting words. I feel amazing. I'm lit up. I feel incredible. I feel unstoppable. 
So oh, save the good words for good things. And for bad things like pain or fatigue, don't go, I'm exhausted. I'm so tired. Just say, well, I'm a little tired, but tonight I'm going to have a great eight hours sleep and I just ca catch up. So you want to maximize the positive and minimize the negative. And even the words, it's why I love swear words so much. The words you put in front of words, how are you amazing? When you say I'm freaking awesome, I'm just unstoppable me, your mind doesn't go, is that true? It just lets it in. You know, I often do the lemon test. We can do it now if you like. If you just do it with me, the whole audience can do it. Put your hand in front of your mouth. And imagine you're holding half a lemon and just inhale and imagine you're smelling a beautiful citrusy lemon and close your eyes and just shove that half a lemon in your mouth. Open your mouth and push that lemon in and start sucking the flesh. Chew that lemon, chew every segment, suck out the juice, swirl it around your mouth, eat that lemon, chew it, suck it, bite it, swirl it. And you'll find that even now your taste buds are puckering and increasing and you're pumping out saliva because you told yourself you're eating a lemon. Your mind doesn't go, there's no lemon. It goes, there's a lemon. And that's very acidic. And if you can make saliva, if you think of a lemon and you can do anything and people say, is that true? But look, come on. We know that if we think something embarrassing, we can go bright red. We think something emotional, our eyes fill up with tears. We're an advert on television. We think something sexual, we can feel incredibly aroused. We see a picture of food, our tummy starts to rumble. So every thought you think has a physical reaction and an emotional response. If you want to change your life, think better thoughts all the time. And of course, you have to stop yourself saying, oh, this is a nightmare. This is hell, what am I doing? I'm talking about the line in the store in Tesco. No, that's not a nightmare, that's the joy. You've got money to buy food. And nightmare is when you can't go into Tesco because you haven't got any money to buy any food or you haven't got anyone to buy any food for except yourself, so why bother? So just be aware that when you change your thinking, it changes your entire life and it starts being what you do. And amazingly, it becomes who you are and it sort of does it for you, which is even more amazing. It's true. How can people find out more then about RTT and train in it, Marissa? Well, if you want to train in RTT, no background in psychology or therapy is required. We just want someone who has existing people skills because it's a very comprehensive training. If you go to rtt.com, it's really simple, rtt.com. You can find out how to train with me. I'm doing a training in London next month live. I'm training this year in Miami, in LA, in Mexico, all over the world. We do lots, I think in the Bahamas too. Go to rtt.com and you can learn how to do what I do. You can also learn how to find someone that does what I do. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for being on the episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. I have, and if you want... If you'd like to give your reader something, if you go to marissapeer.com rather than rtt.com, sorry to say that again. If you go to marissapeer.com, we have a ton of free gifts. We don't ask for your credit card. We love to give this. And we have audios on love blocks, money blocks, health blocks. We have recordings that you can take free of charge to rewire your mind to attract love, to attract health, to attract wealth. So go to rtt.com to train with us and marissapeer.com to take as many free products as you like. Thank you, Marissa.
thank you for joining this episode with me, Max Sefton. I hope you've really enjoyed it. Feel free to leave us a positive review on iTunes. And I look forward to welcoming you back to the next episode of the Brains Magazine podcast.